You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and thanks for joining Energy Insiders, our weekly podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson, I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK analyst David Leach. David, how are you? I'm very well, thanks Giles, and I trust you're well also. Yeah, look, it's been a good week, a good week. Um, Look, I guess you'll be pleased by the main news um, of this week, which was finally we got to see the details of the Victoria Renewable Energy Target and their big auction. Um, 650 megawatts of wind and solar. It will be the largest renewable energy auction um, we've ever seen in Australia. Um, An interesting hybrid model, a contract for difference and a fixed price to be bid by the wind and solar farms. But you'll be pleased, no doubt, because it does use that your favoured mechanism. Uh, Absolutely. And I think Victoria is to be congratulated on getting on with the program. Um, I actually wish they'd done it even a bit faster. Uh, but but nevertheless, better to do it than not to do it at all. It's interesting now, the contract of difference is sort of set around quite low prices, $56 for wind and $53 for solar, $55, $56 for solar with tracking. That's not going to be the final price because added on top of that will be some fixed costs. But it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out and whether Stockyard Hill, for instance, was a bit of a one-off or how much of an outlier that was. Um... Um, It'll be interesting to see how that turns out. Well, yes, we have had um, three big wind farm projects this year that have been bid down. Um, The Silverton in New South Wales, I think that was $65 real price. Uh, um, Then we've had uh, Cooper's Gap in in, um, Queensland, which came after Stockyard Hill, and I think that's at $60 real. Um, So those prices are a little above the um, Stockyard Hill price, but still uh, comparable to it. Absolutely. And if we go back even one year, we had Hornsdale Stage 3, which I think was 70-something dollars. But that's a fixed price, no inflation uplift for 20 years. So I think that actually translated into a current price of about just below $60 if you take the inflation impact. It certainly um, tells us that the prices are a lot cheaper than what is going to be assumed in the Energy Security Board modelling for the National Energy Guarantee, which will be presented to the COAG Energy Minister meeting next week. And excuse me for all those acronyms and things, but um, um, that modelling will be be produced next week. It'll be interesting to see what comes of it. Well, as I said uh, several times on this podcast and other places, I think that kind of modelling's just been produced for political purposes, and I doubt if anyone will take pay any real attention to it. I mean, it's typical. We also saw uh, this week the uh, IEA um, modelling, uh, which is some of the most preeminent modelling in the world, and for the fifteenth year in a row, they had a ridiculous forecast that all of a sudden PV is going to stop growing. I mean, fifteen years in a row, their forecast. I mean, if you look back about eight or nine years, their forecasts are out by a factor of about fifty. I mean, yes. I mean, yes, how, yes. how can how can how can anyone be expected to treat modelling? You know, by experts that get something massively wrong fifteen years in a row. Look, indeed, indeed. Um, my hope is that at least the ESB modelling, it may serve a political purpose, but hopefully it also serves a policy purpose and is not used to sort of create barriers for um, renewables, because I guess that's the biggest fear that we've got about the National Energy Guarantee. We don't know much about it. We don't have the details. We're a little bit worried about what's, um, what's ahead of us. 
it's such a contrast to what we see happening overseas. I mean, you made the point a couple of, um, or a month or so ago, or in fact, probably just a couple of weeks ago, actually, you had a very good piece about pointing out that Australia, as much as we fancy, us, fancy ourselves as leaders because of our rooftop solar and possibly battery storage, in the general scheme of things in renewable energy, we're kind of training behind um, a lot of other places. Uh, yes, Giles, and thank you for your kind words. Uh, it, it, I mean, uh, California has very strong uh, renewable targets in the United States. Texas is doing way better than us. Um, Europe is, in, generally speaking, ahead of Australia at the moment. So there are countries that are, of course, behind us, like uh, many, many of whom are in Asia uh, for one reason or another. But amongst Australia is a big and important country in the world these days on some measures you know, we're up to about, I think, 14th in the world in GDP. I mean, we're a real player out there and we should be carrying our weight. Yeah, we should be. Look, um, on that subject, um, we had the opportunity um, earlier this week to speak to Andrew McAllister, the Commissioner for the California Energy Commission. He's out here, or he will be out here in Australia next week talking at the uh, Energy Efficiency Conference. Um, but we thought we'd get a bit of a heads up and hear what he had to say about the um, policy environment and some of the technolo technology um, choices in California. David and I spoke to Andrew McAllister earlier in the week. Andrew, thanks for joining Energy Insiders. You bet. It's a great pleasure. Well, look, it's been great having you um, in, um, in Melbourne at the National Energy Efficiency Conference uh, next week. But look, I just thought I'd just sort of lay down a bit of, the, uh, bit of the landscape first. When Australia looks over at the United States and we see the Trump administration, we see something of a dark place for climate policies and clean energy policies. But um, I guess the readers of Renew Economy will know that states like California and other states are forging ahead. Can you just sort of set the scene there and, and what exactly is California aiming at the moment um, and, and what's your role? Well, first of all, uh, it's really a great pleasure to be joining you and I'm very much looking forward to being in that part of the world and in person and seeing it live and for myself and talking with many of the stakeholders down there because I do understand there's lots of interesting things going on in Australia. So I think we both have the opportunity to learn from one another. Uh, so the California Energy Commission is the California state agency that does energy policy and planning. So that means a number of different things, everything from siting large thermal power plants, uh, the permitting process, et cetera, uh, all the way to promoting renewables, uh, promoting clean transportation. And I'd say centrally to our mission for the last 40 years is energy efficiency, and that's the area that I oversee at the commission. So we do building standards, appliance efficiency standards. Uh, we do long-term forecasting of energy demand, and that includes figuring out what impacts of efficiency will, uh, will happen and will influence our long-term consumption patterns. So anything related to efficiency, uh, we do. I guess uh, your contextual you know, remarks there about the U.S. generally are absolutely true. Uh, we are, uh, in California, uh, I think uh, pretty trepidatious about what's happening at the federal level, uh, but at the same time we have a large economy. We're by far the largest economy of the states in the U.S., about a little over 10 percent of the, of the national economy, almost 40 million people. Um, it, it's about know, the sixth or seventh or eighth biggest economy in the world, I think. It's anything but from fifth to about eighth, depending on how you count. Uh, you know, what, yeah, metric, what yeah. metrics you use. If you take into account cost of living, it's maybe a little bit lower. If it's just absolute terms, it's a little bit higher, uh, fifth, really. 
But um, I think the, the, the key point is that we can move markets just with the size of our economy. And so our policies do influence builders and manufacturers uh, and those who make products that consume energy. And so we're not uh, completely hands-tied by what's happening at the federal level. In fact, in some ways, it gives us some flexibility to work with other national and subnational entities, which we're doing. Mm -hmm. I think if we look at it in terms of electricity, California is about 255 terawatt hours of consumption, isn't it? Which is about, compares with Australia, about 190. Uh, that makes sense. I think we'd be you know, somewhat larger than Australia uh, as a country. And I think about 80 of your or 90 terawatt hours of uh, your electricity consumption is in the residential sector. Is, is that household sector? Yep, that's about right. And, uh, and historically, actually, if you look at all the efficiency work we've done since the mid-70s when the Energy Commission was formed, that's about how much energy we've saved. Um, uh, uh, you know, we save now annually. So basically, we've saved enough energy across the economy almost to run our entire residential sector. And, and so I was looking at these numbers, and I think the population of California is about 40 million as compared to about, what, Australia, 23 million. Is, is 40 million, is, about, is that about, sound about right to you? That's about right. We'll hit that in just a few years. And, and so that's only a little over two and a half megawatt hours per, per, per person in the residential sector, isn't it? That's correct. And uh, so I think that's a little, Australia, I think, consumes about six megawatt hours per household. I guess there's about two people per household. So almost comparable. I suspect California would be doing a bit better than, than, than Australia, but then you also use a lot more gas, do you, for winter heating and stuff like that? Yeah, so we typically, uh, at least single-family homes, and, and many multifamily actually as well, are dual fuel. So they have natural gas service and electric service. And so you won't see, for the most part, water heating and HVAC energy consumption, other than just the electrical fan and fans and stuff like that, you won't see those in the electric piece, but rather in the natural gas piece. So I'd say probably, I mean, I haven't looked at the numbers specifically, but I'd say roughly the residential consumption for single family homes is going to be comparable, more or less. And, and, and I was looked at, um, well, look, there's a lot of things about California that are incredibly admirable. I mean, you've got a uh, renewable energy target of 33% by 2020, and I think that excludes, uh, leaves out large hydro, doesn't it, for some reason? Yeah, that's correct. We uh, Small hydro counts, but large hydro does not count for the renewable portfolio standard. Of course, we do understand that it's basically carbon-free, and so when, as we move towards 100%, uh, renewables, we really are having to redefine that as carbon-free and, um, you know, to take into account the fact that even some of these large um, nuclear and, and large hydro, even though they do have some environmental downsides, they actually are carbon-free and need to be seen as such. And, and so you, as your renewable percentage uh, rises, I mean, California does have quite a lot of power that it exports and imports, but I'm guessing, I mean, the, the, um, the duck curve was basically invented in California. I'm sure it's going to move out of California and there'll be, <laughs> there'll be ducks everywhere before we finish. But uh, um, how are you guys thinking about this general problem of, of dealing with higher shares of intermittency and how it affects the rest of the generation system and dispatchability? Because that's a, a very much talked about issue in Australia and I'm interested to understand how, how people like yourself are thinking about it. Yeah, it's a, really the problem of our time. I would, I would classify this uh, as really 
the key motivator for some of the policy that's happening in California and increasingly elsewhere. Um, you know, the midday excess of renewables is a real problem. We're already seeing some negative pricing in the sort of shoulder seasons of the spring and the fall, particularly the spring. And that's where you have low demand, but you have lots of solar resource. Uh, and sometimes even concomitant with the solar, you have some wind resource. And there you really have uh, a, a low net load that pushes prices even negative sometimes. So we are already seeing these impacts. Um, the upside is that we have so much great technology that it does give us the ability to manipulate both supply and demand in real time such that we can help match the load with the supply. And so demand response and targeted energy efficiency have a lot of potential to play part of the solution in terms of enabling usage of energy when it's really cheap and, uh, and then delaying it when it's, not, um, uh, when it's not cheap, you know, when it's expensive. And so that load, um, that load shaping, uh, I think, as opposed to traditionally, you know, we did load management where it basically just meant drop load when you had not enough power. But now it really means giving and taking in a much more real-time interaction between demand and supply. So how much how much uh, demand can you move around and over over what time period and how much advance notice do you need to have and well um, so the traditional the, the policies that are in place the programs that are in place right now I'd say are sort of the uh, you know 1.0 version of this and it is more you know pick up the phone and call the large industrial customer and ask them to drop some load or uh, you know talk to them about managing their load so that they can push some of their um, production around in time. Um, and so that's really historically what we called load management. There is some automation going on uh, in the residential where you can mess around with uh, the AC loads and you can uh, cycle large numbers of, of air conditioners in real time so that you basically get minimal service but that you are actually dropping quite a bit of load. And then of course later on in the day that gets made up when you release those resources. Um, I think the potential for doing much more is massive, and it revolves around uh, cheap communications, and it result revolves around some battery storage, uh, some th uh, thermal storage. You know, you can cool big tanks of water to do air conditioning and use power when it's cheap during the night. Uh, those sorts of technologies are going to form a big part of our future. And then similarly, water heating, you know, you can basically use a water heater, a water tank as storage in a single family home or in a large multifamily complex. So you can put it on a timer and, and otherwise manipulate the heat pump. And variable speed technologies let you do that in a way that really does not sacrifice the service quality that people perceive. So those kinds of technologies are getting very, very close to mass de deployment in California and in places like Hawaii and New York uh, as well. And what about electric vehicles then? Um, because that's starting to um, get taken up sort of quite rapidly in California. I think it's one of the leading places. How will you, as that becomes more mainstream, I mean, how will you be using that and sort of plugging into the grid? Will you be sort of thinking of it strategically, um, even offering to pay people to actually charge their cars during times of, um, of excess solar or wind capacity? Absolutely. This is, a, uh, this is another massive load that will be large. Uh, you know, very soon, we think in five years, we'll really have enough EVs to move the needle. Um, and really two points there. Number one is that highlights the 
criticality of energy efficiency because we really need efficiency to create the headroom in the distribution grid to make room for all of these new electrification technologies that are going to come online. And uh, front and center right there is electric vehicles. Uh, we're already seeing lots of traction. The batteries are getting fantastic. The cars are fantastic. They're quiet. They're beautiful cars. They're fun to drive. They have great acceleration. And people are buying them. Sounds like you've got one. You know, I don't yet. I'm actually in, a, I'm in the middle of a project to build uh, a zero net energy home in Davis here. And, uh, and I'm definitely outfitting it with, a, with a chargers for EVs. And as soon as I can sort of scrounge together the money, that'll be my next car. Okay, good luck. But, uh, the second point I wanted to make about, uh, about the EVs is, is just that uh, they are, as you, as you said, they are um, really the main, one of the main um, sectors or places in the grid that uh, can provide these ancillary services that we're talking about. So whether it's load management in sort of the traditional sense or whether it's providing ancillary services like voltage support uh, or you know, frequency support to the grid in particular load pockets, uh, whether they're actually uh, providing you know, real active energy or whether they're... Uh, whether they're a source of reactive power, um, you know, all those things are kind of still up in the air. I think the technology is there absolutely to make it happen. What we need is the right rate structures and the right uh, products, the right ancillary services, the definition of those products and the markets for those products to really get fleshed out a little bit more so that there can be robust markets to provide them. And so you're, you're, what's the overall um, aim now in California? I think you're about 33% to renewable energy now. I can't quite remember what you're aiming to get through for, at, by 2030. And I think there was some legislation there looking for 100%, but didn't quite get through in yeah, this particular correct. legislative um, framework. So, so what do you expect to see? And, and if you do have a 100% renewable energy target by, say, 2040, 2045, how do you expect to get there? And what role is efficiency and demand management going to play in that? Yeah, well, a great set of questions. We're... Um, we're, as you said, we're 33% by 2020, and we are now at 20 at 50% uh, by 2030. Uh, I think we'll blast past both of those. Frankly, um, it's pretty early days, um, and so the, the statutory goal at the moment is 50% by 2030. There, as you said, there there was a discussion in this last legislative session uh, to 80% to 100% um, renewables down the road, 2050 or so. And there, it was a robust discussion. It did not get to the finish line this year, so it got kicked out to be a two-year bill, which means it can be kicked up, it can be picked up again uh, by the legislature next session because we have these two-year sessions, really. And this past mm -hmm. year was the first year of the, of the two-year session. So, uh, you know, it's the last year of the governor's term. It's uh, our, our pro tem who leads the Senate, uh, Kevin DeLeon. He is uh, running for the U.S. Senate now. So the political landscape's a little bit different. Um, I think this session will be really interesting to see how, how the chips kind of fall as people strategize for the next governor. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there's a, there, it is likely, this is just my personal read, it is likely that we will get uh, some kind of legislation to push the renewable portfolio standard further. But again, we're going to have to have that in more carbon terms and less energy terms. And so I think uh, that's really where I see things moving is talking much more explicitly in carbon. So, Andrew, as you say, it's Jerry Brown's last year, is it? He's obviously been a fantastic uh, supporter. Uh, um, who's going to replace him, and are they going to be as supportive? 
Yeah, I don't see the general direction of our energy policies uh, changing dramatically with a new governor, kind of no matter who it is. Um, the populace is behind these policies. Um, we see that they work. We have a robust uh, economy. It's growing faster than almost any other state, certainly better than, than, than any other major state in the U.S. Um, we have an innovation economy. We have a lot of venture capital. We see that we have to deal with uh, the carbon problem, whether or not our federal government is going to move that direction. So I don't see really any of those conditions changing with a new governor. In fact, um, I think the various candidates are just talking about their particular flavors of the clean energy economy and how they're going to promote it, but nobody is doubting it. And, and as you move towards these higher uh, targets, like 40% by 2024 is a, a pretty decent amount, do you expect it's going to be solar and wind? Or, and uh, what about dispatchable renewables? I mean, and, and on the other side, which technology is going to get pushed out? I mean, you won't be pushing your nuclear out in a hurry, I'm guessing. How do you actually see the uh, generation mix evolving? I know demand management's got a big job, but in the end, there's going to be some generation too. Yep, absolutely. So, you know, we have a, a law in California that uh, is prohibiting new nuclear. And if, so we cannot build new nuclear. And we've, uh, five years ago or so, our next to last nuclear went off because of a, a botched steam genera generator replacement. Uh, that was down in San Onofre in San Diego. And then um, our last nuclear has uh, been the subject of a deal between the utility and a bunch of stakeholders and blessed by the Energy Commission that it'll come offline uh, and not seek uh, renewal of its license. Uh, and it'll be offline by 2025, I believe. So, so we will be nuclear free in terms of in-state resources uh, by 2025 or so. The other renewables that are available, there's quite a bit of geothermal in California that's untapped. Um, the question there is whether we actually need baseload, which geothermal tends to be uh, more advantageous for baseload. Um, and then I think you'll see coupled to the large solar installations, increasingly you'll see molten salt storage or some kind of storage coupled to those which let them um, spread out their supply into the night, you know, more, more through 24 hours instead of just at the sunlight and hours. That's interesting what you're talking about, that sort of, you know, that, that, that conversation between dispatchable, um, sort of baseload and dispatchable generation, we're actually having that discussion right now because we're talking about a new policy and, and there's a big push, um, well, in Australia, the whole conversation has been dominated by this need for baseload. So, so tell us more about the way California is thinking about it then. You're sort of moving beyond that and you're just, you're really focusing on this sort of flexibility and this dispatchability rather than these old paradigms. Yeah, I mean, when you have a really low midday net load and you have lots of people with rooftop solar and you have, uh, you know, extremely efficient buildings that actually have less um, you know, sort of power demand during those critical hours, you really don't have a lot of need for baseload. I mean, you know, coal, nuclear, geothermal, those have, the economics of those has historically been that once you build them, it's a heavy capital investment and you run them 24-7, um, you know, based on long-term contracts that work, make the economics work out. So now I think there's a premium on, on flexibility and, as you said, dispatchability, I would really say rampability. Uh, yes. Probably most specifically. So you need you know, the nice thing about a gas-fired power plant is that you turn the knob, and within a couple of minutes it ramps and it starts producing power um, at a drastically you know greater or lower scale. Uh, so that lets you follow load uh, very quickly, instantaneously. And uh, you know 
when you have non-dispatchable renewables, it makes that harder. It's not impossible, but it makes it harder. So how do you use carbon-free resources um, such that you maintain that flexibility? And, and I think much of that is going to be demand management, you know, flexible demand, and also uh, storage, whether it's electrical storage or thermal storage. You know, it's the ability to turn demand on and off and then have storage that lets you uh, manage to the demand that you can't manipulate. Hmm. Well, Andrew, look, um, you're coming, you're speaking to, um, what's going to be your primary message then next week when you speak to the Energy Efficiency Conference and um, have your other meetings? Well, fundamentally, you know, the most sustainable and cheapest energy, whether it's gas or electricity, and, you know, implicitly we tend to talk mostly about electricity, but um, the cheapest and most sustainable unit of electricity is the one that's not needed at all. So if we the can megawatt. avoid, <laughs> if we can, uh, the megawatt, exactly, if we can... Uh, just it's and it's really just good management. You know, it's uh, the nice thing about efficiency is that it really doesn't matter what your politics are. It's just good management and good economics. You know, and you go to business school. You know, an MBA 101 is hey, you know, take care of your resources and use them appropriately and measure them and monitor them and make good business decisions. And that's really 99% of what energy efficiency is about. So I think that's my message: is that there's really no reason to uh, not just put all the chips in the efficiency uh, bucket and, and move forward with as just a good practice, good management um, strategy for improving our economy and, and making everything run better. You know, efficiency really makes all of those other problems we've been talking about smaller. Well, let's hope that that message can actually seep through to the political class. And look, uh, we wish you well on your trip to Australia. And um, thank you very much for joining us today. Hey, thank you. It's been a great pleasure. I look forward to seeing you on that end. Uh, thanks, Andrew, as well. Uh, cheers. Take care. Cheers. And that was Andrew McAllister, the Commissioner of the California Energy Commission, who will be speaking at the National Energy Efficiency Conference next week. David, it was quite um, something to hear a, um, a regulator and a policy rulemaker with a strong vision for the future. Um, I guess that's probably in part because he's got some strong uh, political leadership. Well, that's exactly right, Giles. In fact, if I took one thing from that, uh, it was that it's Jerry Brown, who's been an obvious uh, global leader when you think about it, in driving this for California, is really only representing what Californians actually want. Uh, if we were to take Andrew at his word and that whoever comes after Jerry is going to be prescribing the same popular policies in California. I would note that electricity prices in California are, say, almost double those what they are in Texas. Uh, so you don't get everything for free. But that said, their renewable targets, which get up to uh, 40%, I think it is, by 2025, they don't even include basically hydro in those. <laughs> so, you know, they're much, much stronger targets than we have in Australia. Well, so the real renewables target is more like 60%. And um, it's interesting what you say about the prices there. Um, I often wonder what comes first, the renewables or the high prices. And I think in, in many countries, it's the high prices. Um, and the renewables is actually chosen as a, uh, as a cheaper option over time. Well, certainly in Australia, uh, you know, the other thing we, we, we always talk about is the battle between uh, behind the meter and in front of the meter electricity. And I think for a lot of our listeners, behind the meter is going to be a bigger and bigger part of the, their world. And the fact that electricity prices are high in Australia is what makes behind the meter so attractive and one of the main reasons why rooftop solar here has obviously done so well. And you presume it's also a good um, incentive for energy efficiency and demand management. And it's going to be interesting to hear Dr Kerry Schott, the chairman of the Energy Security Board, speaking at the conference. And she's actually going to be talking about demand management. And um, 
We might go back to one of the first things she said um, after taking um, on her role as chairman of the Energy Security Board. She said that, um, you know, if you get demand management right, um, you might actually obviate the need for any new generation at all. Now, that'll probably cause a few renewable energy developers to choke on their cornflakes, but um, it does make a point that um, there's smarter ways of doing things than just simply building new generation. Well... I'd say two things about that. Firstly, I'd say that Australia has actually done a better job on energy efficiency than we're sometimes given credit for. Uh, you know, the Gillard government's um, insulation program, we've had, we have had higher building standards, although not as high as I would like. Uh, we have seen um, just a straight dropout of some big electricity consumers like some aluminium smelters. But actually, consumption per household, partly in response to these same higher prices, has declined by about 10%. And Australia has grown its GDP since 2009 by about 20% and reduced electricity consumption by 8%. And we've grown our population by about, I don't know, 8% over that time. So it's really not a bad record. Not a bad record, but I think the point, I think a lot of the um, energy energy efficiency advocates think we could do a lot more. Um... Well, I, th I think that, and, and, and I think the other point about demand management is that it's part of this focus on flexible generation that we should be moving towards and fast response that Andrew was talking about and which everyone in the electricity industry is talking about and a little bit less about concepts like baseload and stuff like that which is really a demand concept anyway. Well, I think the test of that's going to be at the COAG Energy, Me Energy Minister's meeting, which is going to be on Friday. It's going to be in Hobart. It's going to be interesting to come see what comes out of that. Um, Queensland goes to the polls the very next day. That's also going to be very interesting, particularly so for the renewable energy industry. Um, David, what would you be hoping to see out of COAG? Maybe an agreement to do further modelling or just knock this thing on the head? Well, I guess I think COAG will just look into it without making a final decision. As I say, I, th I think technically you don't even need COAG on board, although in practice you probably do. Um, so I, I guess I'll just wait and see. I, I have my fingers crossed for the Queensland election that you know renewable energy continues to come to the fore in that state as it thoroughly deserves to. Well, that's right, because the choice we're facing at the moment is between a quite a progressive 50% um, renewable energy target reinforced with their policy document this week, which was says at least 50%, even talking about a solar thermal plant. Not too sure whether Townsville is the best place for it, but never mind. Um, opposed to the, um, the alternative view, which is build a new coal-fired power station in the same area. I think I'm... Well, AGL's made the point that there are very few coal-fired power stations in the world that are more than 50 years old. Um, and if we look around the old coal-fired power stations in the NEM, one of them is certainly in Queensland, and that's the Gladstone station. And that, that will need to be replaced over the next 10 years or so. And I think there's plenty of opportunities to replace it uh, with something like Kennedy 2, uh, backed up uh, with some pumped hydro like Kidston's going with. Well, let's hope. Let's hope sanity prevails. David, um, we will look forward to those things with interest. Um, once again, um, thanks for joining us. And um, I've got to say a quick thank you to our sponsors, What Watchers and Solaray Energy. Um, once again, thanks, David. Uh, thanks, Giles. And I, I think, as, you, as the site shows, um, behind the meters are absolutely taking off at the moment. And so let's see that continue. Indeed. Okay. And thanks to our listeners. And um, once again, we do appreciate your feedback. Um, your the listening numbers are growing. Please do leave a review on iTunes and that um, attracts other listeners to the show. And uh, once again, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers. 
makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs, accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by SolarRay Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.